1: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 178th edition of the program. Today is Friday, February 1st, and before we get into the show... I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which either signed up just this last week to support us or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Aaliyah Aguilar, Aracely Dorok, Brian Belint, JJ Bellamere, Julie Edwards, Karen Sheets, Michael Xavier, Ronnie Cheney, and Stefan Pereira. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the in- independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by visiting humanistreport.com slash support. Or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, we'll talk about the rebellion of the rich and how former Starbucks CEO and douchebag Howard Schultz is floating a centrist, independent presidential run as a means of essentially tanking the chances of someone like Bernie Sanders in the event he secures the Democratic Party's nomination. We'll also talk about him as well as his friend Michael Bloomberg, another billionaire who keep telling us as peasants that we're not allowed to have medicare for all and in more 2020 election news a video of kamala harris recently surfaced that shows her laughing about prosecuting the parents of truant students and we'll also talk about her cnn town hall as well as kirsten gillibrand's fudging of an answer about the filibuster also corporate democrats want to primary alexandria ocasio cortez so we'll talk about that and we'll also discuss how our government is now in the process of trying to support a coup in Venezuela. So all of these topics, as well as others, will be discussed in today's show. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy the episode. Let's go ahead and get to it. Former Starbucks CEO and billionaire Howard Schultz floated the idea of a 2020 presidential run via Twitter, saying, quote, I love our country and I am seriously considering running for president as a centrist independent. (laughs) 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 Now, what Howard managed to accomplish here with that one tweet is honestly remarkable. He did something the DNC has been trying to do, but has been unable to do. He brought together establishment Democrats and the progressive left, because we all came together and united with one message. Fuck off, Howard Schultz. What are you doing? We all want you to go away forever. Now, if you think I'm joking, well, just look at the replies to that thread and you will see that Howard Schultz got blown the fuck out. I don't think I've ever seen a tweet ratio this much. So some of the responses here, to give you an example, you have Randy saying, shut the fuck up. Fuck off, coffee bitch. Don't do it, Howard. Man, you should actually do literally anything else. Why? Because you're rich? Fuck off. And those responses were just a snapshot of the broader response to Howard Schultz because he also received some pushback, um, if you will, in real life where one patriot decided to tell Howard Schultz what we're all thinking. I
0: am seriously considering running for president as a centrist independent. And I wanted to clarify the word independent, which I view... Uh, merely as a designation on the ballot. (coughs) Don't help help elect Trump, you egotistical
2: billionaire. That
3: was just, that was brilliant. In fact, you know what? I got to stand up for that one. That was brilliant. That person was a fucking patriot. Now, you'd think that after the response was
1: so overwhelmingly negative that this egotistical prick would take a hint and actually fuck off, but his advisors decided to respond to all of the negative backlash by assuring us that Schultz could be the fail-safe plan in the event Democrats nominate a far-left candidate in 2020. In other words, if we choose to nominate someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Tulsi Gabbard, this billionaire is going to step in and fuck it up for all of us, try to take that away from us? Really? That's their argument? That's their pitch to us? No, this billionaire is going to unilaterally decide that he doesn't like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Tulsi Gabbard, so he's going to step in to save us only in the event that actually needs to be the case. That's their argument. That's their justification for him running. I mean, the hubris is overwhelming here. Now, here's what they lay out, according to the Politico article. Steve Schmidt, a former chief strategist to Republican John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign and a sharp Trump critic told Politico on Monday that it is possible Democrats will need Schultz to bail them out. Asked whether Schultz's potential entry into the race would throw the election to Trump, Schmidt said it seems that nobody who is speculating about that on Twitter has given any thought to the possibility that the Democratic Party nominates someone who is so far to the left that it guarantees Trump a re-election, Schmidt said. And at that point, the only person who would theoretically be able to stop Trump from a the second term is a centrist candidacy of someone like schultz imagine being so out of touch so narcissistic that you not only think that you can beat the most popular politician in america but you can beat him in a three-way matchup i mean this guy is a joke Now, a lot of people don't want him to run because they're worried that he would split the votes. And sure, that may be legitimate. I'm not too worried about that, though. I'm just irritated by the sheer hubris of this individual, a billionaire who should not be allowed to run for office because if you have that much money, you can't possibly represent the people. A billionaire would step in and say, oh, well, you nominated someone I don't like, so I'm going to run to try to tank that person. That's what irritates me. I mean, I don't see any support on the ground for him, so I'm not necessarily worried about splitting the votes, but you still should be irritated at the fact that oligarchs in this country are getting so brazen that they're no longer just buying off politicians. They're actually getting into politics themselves in order to stop the peasants from getting what we want. Now, it's not like I'm being hyperbolic or unfair to him. He literally has said time and again that we don't deserve to get what we want. A billionaire is telling us we can't have what every other citizen in industrialized countries have when it comes to something like Medicare for all. This is what he said in 2018.
0: Voices within the Democratic Party are going so far to the left. And I ask myself, how are we going to pay for all these things in terms of things like single payer? or people espousing the fact that the government is going to give everyone a job. I don't think that's realistic. And I think we've got to get away from all of these falsehoods and start talking about the truth and not false promises.
1: What an inspiring message, you know, that's that's certainly going to resonate with people, so much so that they shirk the the two-party duopoly and vote for you, this unknown asshole who's the CEO of a company that makes shitty coffee? Really? I mean, do you honestly think that that is a message that would resonate? You're saying we can't afford Medicare for all when 70% of the country wants it, when our neighbors just north of the border in Canada have it? Really? That's your message? And you think that you are going to be able to defeat the most popular politician in the country and Donald Trump simultaneously? I mean, the nerve of him, the nerve of this guy. Think about how greedy he is. We can't have Medicare for all but we can give people like him tax cuts. We can't have Medicare for all, but we can have never-ending wars in the Middle East and North Africa. Like, who do you think you are? Look, here's the thing. Let's just be real about this. Howard Schultz, regardless if you choose to run within the Democratic Party or run as a centrist independent, we're not giving you our votes. Nobody takes you seriously, and we're not going to vote for you. We will, however, take your wealth because every single billionaire is a policy failure. There should not be billionaires. The fact that we have billionaires shows that our economic system is fatally flawed because you amass so much wealth and in turn amass so much power that you think you can unilaterally thwart democracy and then be commended for it. Howard, fuck off. We all hate you and we especially hate you more for condescendingly thinking that we're stupid enough to buy into your bullshit and that you can beat Bernie Sanders in a three-way matchup. Get the fuck out of here. So, as of late, American oligarchs have been up in arms because they notice that the peasants are starting to revolt. And they should be worried because we're coming for that motherfucking wealth, bitch. But anyways, what this is all about is them being outraged at the prospect of paying slightly higher taxes. Also, that way the peasants don't die due to a lack of health insurance. Now, their aggravation with the peasants first started when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently proposed a modest 70% marginal tax rate. Now, Let me remind you that under the Eisenhower administration, the marginal tax rate was up to 90%, in fact, higher than 90%. So what she's proposing isn't really all that extreme, but billionaires are offended at the prospect of the peasants getting people in power that actually represent their interests and what's interesting is that after the billionaires puppets in congress i.e the republican party tried to fearmonger and pretended as if marginal tax rates aren't a thing they still failed because they learned that regardless of all of their propaganda all of the bullshit being peddled by fox news this proposal is still incredibly popular now to make matters worse for these oligarchs presidential candidate elizabeth warren recently proposed a wealth tax that's similar to what we see in some European countries, where rather than taxing income, she actually taxes the assets of Americans worth more than $50 million at a 2% rate. And if you're a billionaire, then you get taxed at a 3% rate, which would bring in nearly $3 trillion in federal revenue over the next decade. And that proposal alone could pay for the total cancellation of student loan debt twice. So, These are proposals that are really scaring American oligarchs, and that's just from AOC and Elizabeth Warren. We haven't even seen Bernie Sanders' 2020 platform yet, but needless to say, the billionaire class and Wall Street are getting worried, and this is detailed in Politico by Ben White, and he explains how Wall Street is currently losing their shit about the prospect of a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren presidency. He explains top Wall Street executives would love to be rid of President Donald Trump, but they are getting panicked about the prospect of an ultra-liberal democratic nominee bent on raising taxes and slapping regulations on their firms. Early support from deep-pocketed financial executives could give Democrats seeking to break out of the pack an important fundraising boost, but But any association with bankers also opens up presidential hopefuls to sharp attacks from an ascendant left, and it's left senior executives on Wall Street flailing over what to do. Now, here at The Humanist Report, we've actually obtained exclusive footage showing billionaires' reaction and the executives on Wall Street's reaction to the rise of progressives like AOC and their proposals to tax these oligarchs. Here it is. That's the response from most of these oligarchs on Wall Street. However, there are some billionaire oligarchs who are choosing to not just sit around and cry as they watch the peasants revolt, they're instead choosing to take action in order to stop the rise of the peasants. For example, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz specifically cited AOC's 70% marginal tax rate as the main thing that catalyzed his decision to run as an independent, because if he can spoil the election and deliver Trump a second term, well, even if he doesn't like Trump, that's still a victory for him, because then he gets to keep more of his money. Yeah, so they're just admitting um, what these oligarchs used to keep to themselves before. But he recently went on The View, which I don't know why they would invite him on, but nonetheless, he appeared on The View, and he explained that, you know, this isn't just about him trying to keep his money that some progressives want to take, just some of it, to maybe pay for health care for the peasants, but nonetheless, it's not about that because he explains that, you know, really, these peasants are just being unrealistic and all of these presidential candidates running in the Democratic Party primary, they're just telling these peasants what they want to hear when they can't have Medicare for all.
0: I would have to be disingenuous as a Democrat if I ran as a Democrat because in order to run as a Democrat today, you have to fall in line with free Medicare for everybody, free, free college for everybody, a free job for everybody, let me finish. But that's and that, what and that's, you said you were given to your, well, no, no, no. that's what you just said you no, gave but, uh, everybody. No, but not, not, the way the, not free for the, for the government. And that totals about $40 trillion on top of the fact that we are sitting on a $21 trillion debt on the, in the country today. Mm-hmm. We can't afford to do it free, so it has to be a
1: different way. Look, peasants, you can't have Medicare for all, so stop asking about it. We can give tax cuts to billionaires like me, but when it comes to Medicare for All, if you get sick and you don't have health insurance or you do have health insurance but can't afford your deductible, too bad. Get more money. Stop being poor, peasants. That's essentially his response. And he's so hell-bent on making sure that his taxes don't get raised that he's literally running just to spoil the election. Now, I'm typically against this rhetoric, you know, trying to condemn Greens for being spoilers and whatnot, but if you're just running with the intention of being a spoiler, there's something fundamentally morally reprehensible about that, because you're trying to subvert democracy Also, that way you can keep a little bit more of your money. How disgusting is that? But Howard Schultz isn't the only oligarch who's telling us peasants that we can't have nice things, because Michael Bloomberg, another 2020 prospect— recently told all of us peasants, no, I agree with Howard, you can't have Medicare for all.
2: I I think you could never afford that. You're talking about trillions of dollars. Uh, I think you can have Medicare for all for people that are uncovered, but because that's a smaller group and a lot of them are taking care of Medicaid already, Medicare, uh, but uh, to replace the entire private system uh, where companies provide healthcare for their employees would bankrupt us for a very long time
1: hey moron newsflash we already have quote medicare for all for people who are poor or uncovered it's called medicaid and guess what people still die under this system because if you just make a little bit more than the requirements you make too much money you go without health insurance or if you manage to actually secure health insurance and you get sick and you can't afford your deductible then you still don't get the care that you need so the system is fundamentally broken but what these oligarchs care about is not you know, what peasants are dealing with. They care about keeping their money because they like being really, really rich. And if you threaten their wealth, then that will impact their lives in a really substantial way. They may have to sell one of their mansions or maybe go down to just having two private jets and maybe have a couple less butlers. And they really don't want to do that. So if you know, you having health care and not dying if you get sick means they have to pay higher taxes and can't have more private jets, then fuck you. And what they don't realize that they're doing now is they're demonstrating, inadvertently so, to ordinary Americans that capitalism is incompatible with democracy. Incompatible. You can't have these two things simultaneously because if you have an economic system that allows individuals to amass this much wealth the wealth that is on par with certain small countries, then that can destabilize the entire system. It can be a threat to democracy itself because these oligarchs become so powerful with this money that they can choose to just self-fund their campaigns and thwart democracy. Maybe get enough votes to tip the scales in favor of the person that will ultimately do their bidding, Donald Trump. So understand that this is unacceptable. Billionaires should not be allowed to run for president because think about this. If you or I wanted to run for president, would we be capable of self-funding our campaigns? Of course we wouldn't. Richard Ojeda just had to drop out because he was relying on small donors small dollar donors, rather, and he just he couldn't see it going anywhere and he didn't want to keep taking their money. Richard Ojeda could have remained in the race if he was a billionaire. So it's becoming a privilege that you can run for president and be successful in politics if you have a lot of money. That's destabilizing to democracy. Capitalism and democracy are fundamentally incompatible. And these idiots are showing that to ordinary Americans and to really demonstrate how these oligarchs have their heads up their own asses Look at the response that an oligarch gave to a question about AOC's tax rate at a recent summit in Davos.
2: There are growing calls to address these inequalities, particularly the wage inequality, with more taxes. In particular, in the United States, there's been a call by Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez to tax uh, people earning over $10 at a 70% tax rate. The current top rate in the United States is 37%. Uh, Michael Dell, do you support this?
0: <laughs> I just want to say I'm thrilled that they're asking.
1: Wow. Me <laughs> um,
0: well, look, I mean, uh, you know, my wife and I set up a foundation uh, about 20 years ago, and we would have contributed quite a bit more than a 70% tax rate on my income, on my annual income. And I feel much more comfortable with our ability as a private foundation to allocate those funds than I do giving them to the government.
4: All right. Uh, so no,
0: I'm, I'm not supportive of that. Well, Keith and And I don't think it would help the growth of the US economy.
2: Oh, that's interesting. And can you say a little bit more about why? Why you don't think it would?
0: Well, name a country where that's worked, ever. United States.
1: <laughs> Briefly, in the 80s. Maybe. No, no, no.
0: For, from about the 1930s through about the 1960s, the tax rate averaged about 70%. Um, At times it was up as high as 95%. And those were actually pretty good years for growth. So I I don't have a strong opinion on that proposal. A lot of the devil is in the details, Um, but I think it's uh, there's actually a lot of economics that suggests that it's not necessarily going to hurt growth.
1: These oligarchs aren't concerned with the pesky facts in fact they don't even know what the facts are because they don't need to know what the facts are they don't need to know how valuable a marginal tax rate on wealth above 10 million can be to ordinary americans they don't have to care because they are completely out of touch with the struggle of everyday americans so while people in flint still don't have clean drinking water while people die every single year because they don't have health insurance, while elderly people are cutting their pills in half in this country. These oligarchs are complaining because we want to tax them a little bit more so we can have just a fraction of the comfort that they experience. And they can't deal with that. They can't have it because they want to have it all. It's the definition of greed. So we're getting to the point where we can't just talk about taxing these oligarchs more, we need to take their wealth, seize their assets, and make sure we don't have billionaires anymore. The billionaire, as it stands now, should go extinct. Not meaning that we should harm these individuals physically, meaning that there should not be billionaires. Take their wealth until they're no longer billionaires, because every single billionaire is a policy failure. And that's something that we have to accept. It may be a fact that makes people feel uncomfortable, but if you truly care about democracy and want to live in a thriving democracy, we just can't have these people who are so wealthy that they amass wealth and power that is strong enough to actually threaten democracy itself. That just can't happen. So you've got to pick billionaires or democracy. That's a question that we're faced with, and I think that the answer is really clear, especially after hearing these assholes talk recently. Take their wealth. We shouldn't have billionaires. It's really not surprising why billionaires like Howard Schultz are so terrified of progressives. Because we had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez propose a 70% marginal tax on income More than ten million dollars. We had Elizabeth Warren propose a two and three percent asset tax for millionaires and billionaires, respectively. And now we have news that Bernie Sanders is doing something that will definitely make them piss themselves. Now, according to Maxwell Sprachin and Emily Peck of HuffPost, Senator Bernie Sanders just proposed huge increases to the estate tax, which would reverse decades of cuts that have allowed the nation's richest to establish generations of wealth. Sanders wants to tax billionaires at a top rate of 77% when they die, a massive increase from the current rate. His Thursday announcement of what he's calling before the 99.8% Act came just days after Republican senators announced they wanted to repeal the estate tax wholesale. Sanders said the bill would raise $2.2 trillion from the more than 500 people who are billionaires in the United States at a time when Democratic contenders for president seem to be in a race to one-up each other with new ways of getting the rich to pay their fair share. Sanders is expected to announce his candidacy for 2020 soon. Our bill does what the American people want by substantially increasing the estate tax on the wealthiest families in this country and dramatically reducing wealth inequality, Sanders said in a press release. From a moral, economic, and political perspective, our nation will not thrive when so few have so much and so many have so little. Republicans have railed against the estate tax for years, calling it the death tax. It was drastically lowered during the George W. Bush administration, even disappearing for a time in 2010 and cut again with the most recent GOP tax overhaul. On Monday, GOP Senators Mitch McConnell, Chuck Grassley, and John Thune introduced legislation that would go even further. Permanently eliminating the federal estate tax altogether. Currently, assets worth more than 11.4 million are taxed at a maximum rate of 40%. As recently as 1976, the tax rate was 77% on assets of 10 million in today's dollars. Sanders would like to get back there. Under his plan, estates between 3.5 million and 10 million would be taxed at 45%. After that, the tax rate would increase to 50% for assets of 10 million to 50 million and to 55% for assets between 50 million and 1 billion. Any assets above that would be taxed at a rate of 77%. Sanders said the bill would affect the richest 0.2% of earners. Now, I just have to point out how clever this is because what Bernie Sanders decided to call this bill is the for the ninety nine point eight percent tax. This will guard this bill from any obfuscation that Republicans will inevitably try because think about this whenever they talk about the estate tax or as they call it the death tax, they make it seem as if you know this is wealth that will be taxed you know to just ordinary Joes and farmers when in actuality. This is the richest people that this will affect. So by calling it the 99.8% Act, the for the 99.8% Act, he's making it explicitly clear this doesn't apply to you, this doesn't apply to me, this applies to the ultra-rich. So this is absolutely something that's needed and I love how he's right there to counter the Republicans' measure to eliminate The estate tax, and he's also there to add another hurdle to um Howard Schultz here's plan to keep all of his wealth and you know be even more greedy. So when we see these different policy proposals from progressives, be it the asset tax from Elizabeth Warren or the marginal tax rate of income above 10 million from AOC, and now the increase of the estate tax from Bernie Sanders, these are all meant to work in tandem. We would benefit as a society if these were all passed simultaneously, or not necessarily simultaneously, but if they all existed at the same time. Because if you live in a country where people can become so filthy rich that they surpass a billion dollars, then that speaks to the failure of our economic system, because normal human beings... They just don't need that much wealth. Think about this. If you had a billion dollars and you went out and you bought a Ferrari, it wouldn't even register. You wouldn't even realize that you had just spent a significant sum of money. It's an amount of wealth that is inconceivable. And not only that, with money comes power. So as the amount of money that they have increases, so too does their level of power. And that poses a direct threat to democracy because then these billionaires have the ability to self-fund their elections. And they make it so that way they don't have to compete and start at city council and work their way up to get elected. They can just buy their way into the race, which is a privilege nobody else in the country has. They don't just have to buy off puppets to write the rules for them. Now they can just fund their own elections, get in, and cut their own taxes. That's exactly what Donald Trump did. So you have people like Howard Schultz getting so brazen in their greed that he's literally running on not taxing the rich anymore. I mean, if you think that's going to resonate, then you're in for a really rude awakening. Because the way that Donald Trump, even if he has the same intentions as Howard Schultz, the way that he was elected was by actually trying to speak to normal Americans. Now, he was lying. He was a faux populist. But nonetheless, he at least have the political intuition to acknowledge that you can't just run on, I'm representing the billionaires. But that's what these assholes are doing, and they're getting so shameless. But now, do we see Bernie Sanders backing down? No. He comes out and proposes another way of taking what rightfully belongs to the American people, their wealth, because you didn't earn a billion dollars. Nobody can earn a billion dollars. It's impossible to do so much work to earn a billion dollars. One couldn't earn a billion dollars in 10 lifetimes. So when I talk about seizing their wealth and seizing their assets, people retort by saying, well, that's a form of theft. How can you live in a democracy and support that type of policy position? And my response is, how could you not? Because them, quote, earning a billion dollars is theft. Because if you're earning a billion dollars, then capitalism has failed the people that's theft they exploited their workers to get that money so with that being said i absolutely support this and i really like that progressives aren't backing down you can really get a sense as to who the true progressives in the race are because when these billionaires start to cry and whine about how oppressed they are by the peasants you know that's the time when you pounce That's what Elizabeth Warren is doing. That's what Bernie Sanders is doing. That's what AOC is doing. That's what I expect Tulsi to do. And it's something that we all need to do. Because the rich, for too long, have gone away with their greed. And now is the time when people are suffering and desperate, when they are susceptible to radicalization, when they are susceptible to being duped by a right-wing demagogue like Donald Trump, that's when you know they're starved. They're being deprived of resources these oligarchs took from them. So now it's just time that we take it back. Simple as that. If you're curious as to why government officials and politicians in America right now ostensibly care so much about the people of Venezuela, well, let me just explain it to you in the most simplest way possible. They don't care about the people of Venezuela at all. In fact, what they care about is something very different. They have an agenda.
0: Trying to get that all, Oh ho!
1: It's all about the oil. So by speaking out, they're claiming to speak out on behalf of the Venezuelan people, but in actuality, all they want is to jack Venezuela's oil. And that has become painfully clear as of late, not because you can see the evidence pointing to that being the conclusion, but because they've admitted that this is their ultimate goal. Now, to kind of give you the rundown as to how we got to this point, in 1999, socialist Hugo Chavez came to power in Venezuela and promised to carry out the vision of Simon Bolivar. Now, what he began to do was nationalize private industries that were of particular interest to the United States, and that includes oil. Now, what made Hugo Chavez unique was that he was one of the only leaders in Latin America that decided to stand up to U.S. imperialism, and he refused to let foreign powers and large multinational corporations exploit his country's oil wealth. Now, this led to, you could have guessed a coup attempt in 2002. Now, even though it's the case that, you know, the Bush administration and the CIA had intelligence about the upcoming coup, and they even met with those who were planning to carry out the coup, well, they totally had nothing to do with it, guys. They assure us that that's the case. Now, anyone who knows anything about the situation in Chile with Allende, and just in general, U.S. involvement in Latin America, this was their response to the United States is denial.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. Now, fast forward to 2013, Hugo Chavez died and Nicolas Maduro came to power, which was hopefully another opportunity from the standpoint of the US to actually do what they want in Venezuela, but then learning that Nicolas Maduro was not going to be a puppet to the United States like his predecessor, what did they try to do then? Well, they teamed up with Israel and Saudi Arabia to artificially drive down the cost of oil, thus undercutting Venezuela's oil profits and hurting their economy overall. Because if Saudi Arabia is flooding the global market with cheap oil, then obviously Venezuela is going to have to compete. And that's in turn going to hurt their economy. But if you hurt their economy, what do you do? You destabilize their entire country because Venezuela, they haven't diversified their economy, so they're basically relying almost exclusively on oil. So you undercut their economy, you destabilize the country. And then what happens? Well, social and political unrest follows, and that's exactly what happened. And once the country was destabilized and you had the social and political unrest well, then followed sanctions from the United States the year after by President Obama, and that, of course, exacerbated the situation. We basically broke Venezuela for our own greedy purposes. And it got to the point where the country became so unstable that the opposition party, who's against Maduro has essentially been trying to goad the United States into intervening because that would behoove them. Why? Because it would help them come to power. Now, speaking of the opposition party, just last week, Juan Guaido, who's the leader of the opposition, decided to just willy-nilly declare himself president of Venezuela. Now, unsurprisingly, the United States acknowledged him as the president, Trump actually acknowledged him as the legitimate interim president via Twitter, and Maduro then called for US diplomats to leave, but of course the US refused to comply, citing Maduro's lack of legitimacy since they now don't view him as the rightful president, they view Gaido as the rightful president. So now we're in a situation where we want that oil so bad, we're willing to do everything, including possibly invading venezuela now i'm not being hyperbolic and in this video i think that what we're going to see from trump's administration particularly his national security advisor john bolton a warmonger is going to give you all the information you need that will make clear why we care so much about about venezuela it's not about the people of venezuela it's about the oil in venezuela now that's basically an oversimplification. Everything that I've told you about isn't the full context. You can take a full 10-week course on Latin American politics as I did and still not have all of the details. But for the most part, that's the bare minimum context that you need in order to really grasp the details of the story. Now, I do think more information is important, so I will supply you with a link to a video done by David Dole of The Rational National who gives you a really thorough, in-depth breakdown of the situation. And I will also link you to a secular talk video where you will watch Kyle go on one of the best rants you've ever seen where he basically speaks for all of us and talking about the absurdity of the situation and how the president declared a coup d'etat via twitter all under the guise of caring about the venezuelan people when it's very clear that this is all about the oil we have tsa workers not getting paid eight hundred thousand federal workers not getting paid they have to go to fucking food banks to make sure that they eat and you're gonna tell me you care about venezuelans Try caring about Americans, you fuckhead! So I'm not going to give you the deep dive on the issue in particular, but what I'm going to do is shed light on our government's nefarious agenda. Because I think this is a pretty easy issue if you're progressive. Regardless of how you feel about Maduro, you should be against the coup because it's not our duty to determine who is or isn't legitimate. We don't get to say that Juan Guaidó is the interim president simply because there are people marching. There are other people marching against Juan Guaido. So that's not on us to say. But what I think is really important is we establish why we're doing this. And we're doing this for self-interested reasons. So it's clear that Trump's administration wants Maduro out and Guaido in. So what do you do if you want to overthrow a government? You hit them where it hurts. You announce sanctions on their oil company, so Maduro's government then loses revenue and in turn can't pay his military and as a result gets bucked from power even faster because if it's the military that's propping you up and the military is no longer supporting you because you're not paying them, then obviously that means you're on your way out. That's what you do. And it's exactly what Trump's administration is doing because here's John Bolton explaining that he's announcing new sanctions on Venezuela's oil company.
2: We're gonna announce sanctions against Petróleos de Venezuela, Sociedad Anima, or Peta Vesa, as it's known by its Spanish acronym, the state-owned oil monopoly. Uh, we have continued to expose the corruption of Maduro and his cronies, and today's action ensures they can no longer loot the assets of the Venezuelan people. Uh, We expect, and Secretary Mnuchin will go into this in more detail, that today's measure uh, totals $7 billion in assets blocked today, plus over $11 billion in lost export proceeds over the next year.
1: So the goal of these new sanctions is to further destabilize the country and to make it so Maduro starts losing support among the military. Because if he loses the military, he essentially loses the country. That's the goal of this new round of sanctions. Now, Donald Trump claimed that this is all being done at the behest of the the Venezuelan people, but unfortunately for him, John Bolton may have revealed a little bit too much because in an interview with Trish Reagan on Fox Business News, he actually made it very clear it's not about the Venezuelan people. They have a very very clear goal it's to take venezuela's oil that's what he said here watch very carefully and listen to his words here because he's not going to say this explicitly but he is going to say this in a roundabout way uh, today here in
2: washington we've been looking at ways to disconnect maduro from the financial resources he needs to pay the military and otherwise keep himself in power that could be a very effective way we think of helping the uh, the legitimate government
5: How
4: do you do that?
2: Well, there are a number of things we could do. You know, we have already informed the Federal Reserve that uh, Guaido is the real uh, interim president, the, the legitimate government, which means that all official Venezuelan uh, financial assets in this country now belong to interim president Guaido. Maduro doesn't have control over it mm-hmm. uh, any longer. We're looking at the oil assets. That's the single most uh, important income stream to the government of Venezuela. We're looking mm-hmm. at what to do to that. We want everybody to know we're, we're looking at all this. Very seriously. We don't want any American businesses or investors caught by surprise. They can see what President Trump did yesterday. We're mm-hmm. following through on it.
5: Uh, so, if you think of a company like SICO, which is owned by Pedavesa, which is the state run oil company there in Venezuela, we have a lot of those SICO Cisco assets right here in the U.S. Is that something, for example, sir, that you're looking at?
2: Yeah, well, we're in conversation with major American companies now that are either in Venezuela or, in the case of Sitgo here in the United States, uh, I think we're trying to get to the same end result here. You know, uh, Venezuela is one of the three countries I call the troika of tyranny. It'll make a big difference to the United States economically if we could have American oil companies really invest in and and produce the oil. Uh, capabilities in uh, venezuela it'd be good for the people of venezuela it'd be good for the people of the united
1: states we both have a lot at stake here making this come out the right way i want to repeat that because it's very important what he's saying here it'll make a big difference to the united states economically if we could have american oil companies really invest in and produce the oil capabilities in venezuela do you understand what he's saying here and the implications of what he's saying here That was Donald Trump's national security advisor. One of the most influential individuals in Trump's administration. Admitting that we're meddling right now with another country's affairs, another country's internal affairs, specifically because we want that oil and we're angry that their current president isn't giving us access to their natural resources. He's admitting it. These are things just you know, a couple of decades ago, that you would never catch a public official admitting. But now, they've become so emboldened by never-ending wars and support from the media now going along with these never-ending wars that they feel inclined to just say their goal on national television. Yeah, we don't really care about the uh, Venezuelan people. We want their oil. This is unbelievable now to make matters worse think about the context of the situation that was the national security advisor saying we should take their oil now the buck ultimately stops with trump and if trump doesn't want to do that trump can say no john we're not going to do that however let me remind you what uh donald trump said with regard to iraq's oil
0: we should have kept the oil when we got out and you know it's very interesting had we taken the oil you wouldn't have isis Because they fuel themselves with the oil. That's where they got the money.
3: So you believe we can go in
0: and take the oil?
2: We should have taken the oil. You wouldn't have ISIS if we took the oil.
1: So that's what he said in 2017 about Iraq. Now, hypothetically speaking, what happens if these new sanctions don't do what they're intended to do? What if they don't weaken Maduro ultimately? What if he thwarts off this coup attempt like Hugo Chavez, thwarted off a coup attempt in 2002. What happens if they were to accomplish what they intended to accomplish? How far would they be willing to go? Is military action possibly on the table? Well, according to John Bolton, we're not ruling out anything. You mentioned the word significant response. How do you define significant response?
2: Well, we're not going to define it because we want the Venezuelan security forces to know how strongly we think that President Guaido, the National Assembly, the opposition, and most importantly, American personnel are not harmed. This is an unequivocal statement on our part.
0: Is there any circumstance under which American forces would get involved?
2: Look, the president has made it very clear on this, uh, uh, on this matter that all options are on the table. I was
1: shocked when I saw that. And, I, I, like, I shouldn't be shocked. This is John Bolton. He's a neocon's neocon. He'd invade Canada if he could. But there he is, just saying it openly. All options are on the table. That's code for a military invasion is also on the table. So think about this. We're in this situation where Maduro ordered U.S. diplomats to leave the country. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, they refuse, which they have since the United States says anything Maduro says, any order he issues doesn't count. It's invalid because he's not the legitimate president. It's Gaido. What happens if the police arrest those American diplomats? Well, as John Bolton alluded to there, we're going to protect our personnel Nothing's off the table. Now, throughout the course of this press conference here, John Bolton accidentally, quote, accidentally revealed his notes. And if you take a look at his notes here, it says 5,000 troops to Colombia. Now, if you think that this was a mistake, that he didn't want this to get out, then you'd be mistaken because what he was doing here by, quote, accidentally revealing his notes is sending a message to Maduro. If you don't leave we're coming for you. That was a threat. It wasn't an accident that he wrote in plain English here, 5,000 troops to Colombia. That's not an accident. You don't just accidentally reveal that information. You want that information to get out. And that's what he did. He wanted that information to get out. So just to really put this story in the most simplest terms possible, this is not surprising. This is what we do in Latin America. We break Latin American countries all so that way we can get in and take their resources or install a puppet who will give us the resources. It's happened countless times in Latin America. It happened in Iran when we decided to overthrow their democratically elected leader to install a puppet who would actually work with the United States. I mean, we support 73% of the world's dictatorships. Do you honestly think that people like Donald Trump and John Bolton care about the authoritarianism of someone like Maduro? Of course they don't care. They don't give a shit about the Venezuelan people. This is all about the oil. And if I've accomplished anything in this video, I hope it's I've made it clear that that's what their agenda is. And don't take my word for it. Take their word for it. 2020 presidential candidate Kirsten Gillibrand is... I guess we'll call her a late bloomer, <laughs> if you will, when it comes to issues like Medicare for all, because she only recently evolved on this issue um, as uh, as recently as 2017. Now, look, I, I don't want to shit on any politician for coming around to the right side of an issue, for getting on the right side of history, because these are things that you should be doing. You should be representing the people. However, with that being said, we need to be nuanced as progressives and understand that there's a difference between signing on to Medicare for All for purposes of political expediency and actually signing on to Medicare for All because you're going to be a leader and fight for it and vociferously and passionately argue for it and do what you can to to deliver this policy, to get it codified into law. Now, whether or not Kirsten Gillibrand would actually be a leader on this issue and fight for it and isn't just going, on, going along with the flow, that's a different question in and of itself. A question we haven't got an answer to until recently when she appeared on an episode of Pod Save America and she was asked a very direct question how willing she is to fight for an issue like Medicare for All when it comes to breaking decorum in the United States Senate. And she showed her cards right here because she made it clear she's not going to fight that hard. At
0: best, um, you as president would have a Democratic majority in the House and a narrow Senate majority. Certainly not 60 votes, right, Um, after this election. So there are no Senate Republicans in favor of Medicare for All. Probably very few in favor of a big program like Green New Deal or something like that. As president, would you push, hopefully, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to get rid of the filibuster so you can pass something like Medicare for All or a Green New Deal?
5: Um Well, the filibuster is mostly gone now, (laughs) (laughs) so it barely exists. Uh, No, I think... Well,
1: yeah, that's why I'm sort of thinking, like... It uh, barely
5: exists. It barely exists. There's pretty much a 51-vote threshold now for everything. Right. The only part we had left in place was for Supreme Court justices, and and Mitch just took that away. So I think uh, it's useful to bring people together, and I don't mind that you have to get 60 votes for cloture because you're trying to... Uh, get people to a point where and that's a a term of art for your listeners it just means that you're done with debate and so you will um, urge people to have at least 60 votes to say we're done with debate that's not an unreasonable goal because if people don't feel like you're done with debate and that they haven't been heard enough maybe you should debate a little more and I think government only works when people who care deeply stand up and fight for what they believe in and, and know how important their voices are. And so if you're not able to get 60 votes on something, it just means you haven't worked hard enough talking to enough people, and trying to listen to their concerns, and then coming up with a solution that they can support. So uh, I'm not afraid of it one way or the other. Uh, because but you'd be,
1: op- you'd be open to getting rid of it for something big like Medicare for I all?
5: I don't think we should have gotten rid of it for the Supreme Court justices, because they're lifetime appointments. And I do think you should be able to earn at least sixty votes. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'll think about it. I, I, I you know, I, I can. I believe I can work well under either system, mm-hmm. because if you don't have sixty votes yet, it just means you haven't done enough advocacy, and you need to work a lot harder.
1: So, long story short, what you just saw there was her essentially inadvertently admitting that she's not serious about Medicare for All, that she's not willing to be relentless in advocating for Medicare for All. And the ironic part about that clip is that she was filibustering when giving an answer as to why she wouldn't really want to get rid of the filibuster, because she was filibustering, going on this tangent explaining what cloture is thank you so much kirsten all in an attempt to kind of buy herself some time and think of a justification for wanting to keep the filibuster but the fact that you would prefer to operate in a system where you need 60 votes for something like medicare for all when republicans are approving supreme court justices with just a 50 plus one vote majority it shows that You're just not really willing to be a fighter. And she says, quote, if you don't have 60 votes yet, it just means you haven't done enough advocacy and you need to work a lot harder. No. That's where you are wrong because what matters is the advocacy for the issue with regard to the American people and 70% of Americans, including 52% of Republicans, want Medicare for all. So it's not a matter of convincing people in the Senate that Medicare for all is good. It's the American people who you've got to convince. And spoiler alert, we're already convinced we want it. Now it's just a matter of you doing what we want, doing our will. So I don't give a fuck if- That requires 51 votes or not. Do whatever is easiest to deliver on a policy that the American people desperately want and are begging for that people on the left and the right want. But Kirsten Gillibrand showed that she's going to be an Andrew Cuomo. Well, you know, I wanted Medicare for All. We proposed it, but it failed because it didn't, you know, meet the 60 vote threshold. Well, then you need to twist arms. Think about this. Medicare for All It's not going to be the type of issue that will ever come to fruition and actually be passed if we have some namby-pamby Democrat who's just going to say, oh, well, here's the issue, vote on it, oh, it failed, okay, done. You have to build coalitions, you have to twist arms, you have to issue threats. Use your bully pulpit to fight for it. Split skulls. Get fucking Medicare for All. Metaphorically speaking, by the way, when I say split skulls, but get Medicare for All. And she's showing that she's she's just not going to be a fighter for it. And that was something that is not acceptable. If you're not going to get dirty, if you're not willing to fight, then you're not serious about getting Medicare for All, and you just revealed your true intentions. You never really supported Medicare for All. You just took that position for purposes of political expediency, knowing that it would be a litmus test, and you couldn't make it past Iowa in a Democratic Party primary if you didn't back Medicare for All. But we're past you just you politicians, you, you know, in a broader sense, we're past you all just simply saying, I support Medicare for paying lip service. Now that we've passed the coalition building part, now we're trying to see who's the true leader, who's really willing to go to bat for us. And clearly it's not Kirsten Gillibrand. So at this point, I mean, you're not going to convince progressives that you're the real deal or anyone for that matter, because how could we trust that you're going to fight for us if you're not even willing to get rid of the filibuster? I mean, what a weak move. You're already conceding before the fight even begins. So she's not it if you're hoping for Medicare for All. Over the weekend, Kamala Harris kicked off her 2020 presidential campaign with a rally in Oakland, and this event attracted thousands of participants. And I think that she made it very clear that she is no candidate to sleep on, and the reason why I view her as a threat, as a progressive, is because she has managed thus far at least to kind of carve out this space for herself within the Democratic Party primary field in which she is able to appeal to the establishment wing of the party, but also extend an olive branch to the progressive left and Bernie Sanders supporters, something that Hillary Clinton did not do in 2016. So she reminds me of a more charismatic, pseudo-populist version of Hillary Clinton, that is exponentially more politically astute because it's very clear Kamala Harris knows what she's doing, and it's not too surprising why many people were captivated by her speech, because she not only preached unity and used the flowery rhetoric and platitudes that a lot of other establishment Democrats love to use, but she also did try to cater to progressives by talking about every American having the right to join a union, Medicare for All, and universal pre-K, so it's very clear to me that she is a skilled politician, The problem, though, with Kamala Harris is that even if she is incredibly charismatic and she's talking about the right issues, so this is all the makings of a fantastic candidate, the problem is that people don't know that... If you just do a quick five-minute Google search, you will learn that she is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, the reason why I say this is not because I just want to shit on Kamala Harris, but she is, like many Democrats, tied to Wall Street. Additionally, when she was California's attorney general, and her department determined that Steve Mnuchin, head of One West Bank at the time, had committed more than a thousand instances of fraud, she chose to not prosecute him, and then. Come to find out, she was accepting campaign contributions from him throughout the years. But with that being said, in addition to those issues, last week I did a 25-minute segment where I detailed her record as a prosecutor, and there were a ton of blemishes on her record. First of all, there's all the wrongful convictions that she defended. Second of all, there's the issue of her defending the use of prison slave labor. And additionally, there are various anecdotes that demonstrate She's not too progressive because she always tried to frame this discussion about her tenure as a prosecutor as her being a progressive prosecutor. But I mean, when you look at instances where she stepped in to tell a transgender inmate that she does not deserve gender confirmation surgery, That's something where you just kind of have to step back and say, this is not something a progressive prosecutor would do. Now, one of the biggest blemishes on her record that I touched on last week, but didn't get too deep into the details of, was her decision as a prosecutor to aggressively enforce truancy laws to the point where she would literally prosecute the parents of kids who have multiple unexcused absences and fees now the reason why this practice in particular is morally indefensible is because it disproportionately affects poor communities especially communities of color and while we all agree that children should be in school Kamala Harris failed to ask the question, why aren't these children in school? And rather than looking at this issue as a socioeconomic issue, she chose to look at this as a criminal issue. She chose to prosecute the parents of children who aren't attending school. And in a video that recently surfaced from 2010, where she spoke to the Commonwealth Club She said some things about her decision to pursue parents of uh, truant children that really were disturbing. So take a look, and I'm going to tell you why she's wrong here.
4: I would not be standing here were it not for the education I received. And I know many of us will say the same thing. And I believe a child going without an education is tantamount to a crime. So I decided I was going to start prosecuting parents for truancy. Well, this was a little controversial in San Francisco. (laughs) And frankly, my staff went bananas. They were very concerned because we didn't know at the time whether I was going to have an opponent in my reelection race. But I said, look, I'm done. This is a serious issue, and I've got a little political capital, and I'm going to spend some of it. And this is what we did. We recognized that in that initiative as a prosecutor and law enforcement I have a huge stick the school district has got a carrot let's work in tandem around our collective objective and goal which is to get those kids in school so to that end on my letterhead now let me tell you something about my letterhead when you're the DA of a major city in this country usually the job comes with a badge and there is often an artistic rendering of said badge on your stationery So I sent a letter out on my letterhead to every parent in the school district outlining the connection that was statistically proven between elementary school truancy, high school dropouts, who will become a victim of crime, and who will become a perpetrator of crime. We sent it out to everyone. A friend of mine actually called me and he said, Kamala, my wife got the letter. She freaked out she brought all the kids into the living room held up the letter said if you don't go to school kamala's gonna put you and me in jail
1: (laughs) yes yeah to me that is just unacceptable because if you are going to be a leader on the left then you need to be especially sensitive to the issues facing our country's most vulnerable communities and instead of asking the question why are these children having a difficult time attending school? Is there any underlying behavioral issues that need to be addressed? Is there income disparities in these communities where they are, uh you know, they're more absent? What's the issue? Instead of trying to look at the issue, she chose to prosecute. The parents of children who were truant. Now, the reason why she mishandled this situation in a fundamental way is because, as Dana Goldstein points out in an article for New Republic, quote, getting tough on truancy doesn't help students get an education and it unfairly attacks the poor. Now, what this article attempts to do is bring some much needed understanding to the situation because rather than just characterizing the parents of truant children as criminals, and looking at them as the bad guys, well, maybe we should be asking why their kids aren't showing up to school. Now, keep in mind that these truancy laws are going to range depending on the state and district, and some of these are incredibly harsh. So, I mean, if you just have three unexcused absences, that can result in a fine. So, this story makes me think about how these laws can really be misused to make the poor even worse off than they already are. Because think about this. If you have just three unexcused absences and you're already poor and you start racking up fines, then what does that do? That makes a family who's poor even more poor because now they have to dole out money for these fines. But... In many instances, they can't pay these fines because they're poor. So if you rack up so many fines, then what happens? Well, then you get arrested and you go to jail. But that also compounds the situation because if you go to jail and you're unable to go to work then you may be fired from your job. You may not have enough money because you missed work and your paycheck will be shorter. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck, then, I mean, this is clearly something that is not going to help the situation. And when you choose to prosecute them for not paying these fines and throw them in jail, at that point, I think it's safe to say that you're just being cruel. Now, as Goldstein explains in this article, absence from school is an undeniable problem. We know it is correlated with lower grades and dropping out of high school and with trouble with the law. What is less certain is if treating truancy as crime addresses these underlying issues in an effective and reasonable way, such interventions have not been proven to increase school attendance or decrease long-term criminal behavior. In fact, the criminalization of truancy often pushes students further away from school and their families deeper into poverty. Our courts are not very good at getting kids back into class. Research demonstrates that although truancy proceedings can increase a child's School attendance in the short term, answering to a judge for school absence does not help students graduate high school or avoid crime. A 2011 study from the Washington State Center for Court Research compared high school students who received truancy summons with kids who had the same number of unexcused absences and similar grades, but who were not called into court. The students in court experienced more subsequent absences than the ones who avoided law enforcement. They also received lower grades. And were more likely to drop out of school or be charged with a crime. Now, to be fair to Kamala, the results from this particular study came out a year after she made that speech to the Commonwealth Club, but you have to understand that just generally speaking, as a broad rule for prosecutors, anytime you choose to use your resources and prosecutorial discretion to go after the poor. You've got to expect there to be adverse consequences, and for whatever reason, Kamala Harris had a blind spot in this area. Now, these types of harsh truancy laws have been pushed in states across the country, as I alluded to earlier, and they became a lot more prevalent ever since George W. Bush passed his No Child Left Behind Act, and as Goldstein points out in the article, some education advocates are actually worried that the crackdown on truancy is an indirect way to improve test scores, because think about this, if if funding for schools hinges specifically on test scores and there's supposedly this link or theoretically there's this link between absence and lower test scores, then by prosecuting the parents of truant students, then that will oftentimes lead to these students being taken out of public schools and being placed in alternative forms of education. Now what does that do? You in turn remove them from this standardized testing pool in hopes of increasing the average scores so that district won't lose crucial resources. This isn't something that's confirmed, even though it sounds really, you know, nefarious and almost is cartoonishly evil, but I mean, education advocates are concerned about this, that this may be the agenda or at least incentivized because they have a reason to be cynical. These public schools are being starved of resources. So, in a way, it kind of incentivizes a crackdown on these truancy laws if they think it's going to help them improve overall scores so that way they can get more funding. So, I mean, you kind of have some background now about why this is so problematic. And the way that Kamala Harris spoke about this issue in, I think, a flippant way it really showed that she doesn't grasp how harmful this was. She made it seem as if, by the way, her move to prosecute parents would be simply controversial because, well, there's just some people that disagree with her. No, it's not controversial because it's a debatable issue. It's controversial because you are choosing to inflict harm on communities because of your misguided approach to education. Rather than focusing on this as a socioeconomic issue, you chose to treat this as a criminal issue. But the problem with Kamala Harris is that she isn't very aware of the issues that vulnerable communities are facing, not just in the United States, but around the world, because that wasn't the only video from her that resurfaced recently that kind of is incriminating of Kamala Harris because she gave a speech at AIPAC in 2017 and she talked about how she was unequivocally supportive of Israel, made no mention of Palestinian human rights.
4: In the midst of uncertainty and turmoil, America's support for Israel's security must be rock solid. And as Iran continues to launch ballistic missiles, while it arms and funds its terrorist-proxy Hezbollah, we must stand with Israel. As Hamas maintains its control of Gaza and fires rockets across Israel's southern border, border, we must stand with Israel. And as ISIS and civil war in Syria destabilize the region, displacing millions and threatening shared security interests. We must support all those affected by ongoing violence and terror, and we must stand with Israel. Our defense relationship is critical to both nations which is why I support the United States' commitment to provide Israel with $38 billion in military assistance over the next decade. It is why I support full funding for Israel, including for the Arrow, David Sling, and the Iron Dome missile defense systems, which save lives. And that's why I am fully committing to maintaining Israel's qualitative military edge.
1: So you saw her condemn Hamas for their violent actions, firing rockets off into Israel, which we don't support, but she made no mention of Israel's 2014 incursion into Gaza, made no mention of the numerous human rights abuses Of Palestinians, made no mention of the fact that Palestinians are treated as second class citizens in Israel, made no mention of the fact that the far right Israeli government continues to build settlements on Palestinian land. So, I mean, this is just kind of another video that lends evidence to the claim that Kamala Harris really has this blind spot when it comes to the issues that vulnerable communities face. She's often quick to point to the criminality involved in these issues, but she doesn't actually look at these issues in a nuanced way. And this is an issue that she's going to have to come to terms with If she wants to win the Democratic Party nomination, because you can speak in platitudes if you want, you can invoke policies like Medicare for All, which you should do, by the way, but you can invoke those policies in an attempt to court progressives. But unless you actually explain to us that as president, you're going to stand up for our country and the world's most vulnerable communities, then you're not progressive. You're just pretending to be a progressive. So as you might have seen, CNN recently held a town hall exclusively for Kamala Harris in the state of Iowa, which is something I doubt they'll be doing for every other candidate. But nonetheless, they had a town hall with her and as they usually do, they allowed the audience to ask certain questions. Now, watching this town hall, two things became very clear to me. One is that Kamala Harris is a very gifted politician. She's a charismatic speaker and she knows what she has to say and do in order to not piss off a lot of people, especially the progressive left. But with that being said, another thing I learned about her is that even if she is a gifted politician and she's more politically astute than someone like Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, she still hasn't perfected the politician's artful dodge. Because when she's dodging something and she gets uncomfortable and she doesn't want to answer a particular question, you see it on her face. And it it doesn't go very well for her. So, for example, she was asked a very simple, straightforward question about multi-billionaires. Is it morally defensible to have a system where multi-billionaires exist? And as you will see, she answered the question by saying nothing to address the crux of the issue that she was asked about. My question for you tonight is simple. In a society where nearly one in five children live in poverty, is the existence of
0: multi-billionaires morally defensible?
4: Well, here's, let's just say this. We have had policies in this country, at least in the last two decades, that have disproportionately benefited the top 1% to the exclusion of working families. We have a situation in our country right now where just recently this administration passed a tax bill that benefits big corporations in the top 1% to the exclusion of supporting working families. And that is unconscionable. And you are exactly right. We have babies in America today that are on the verge of starving. We have families that cannot pay their bills. In fact, one of my proposals is that we address this inequity around what what has been termed what would be one of the most significant tax cuts for middle-class families in generations. And it is what I propose. I call it the LIFT Act. But what we would do is for families who are making less than $100,000 a year, they would receive a $6,000 tax credit that they could receive $500 a month understanding that we have so many families in America right now that are a $500 emergency away from complete financial catastrophe.
1: Now, she continues on there for another minute or so without actually answering his original question, which, let me remind you, was whether or not it was morally defensible to have multi-billionaires while people are in poverty. And she, you know, she gave a response that you'd expect from a politician, you know, it's time for them to pay their fair share, but she didn't address the crux of the question. It was a dodge, and it was a pretty blatant dodge. Now, another question she chose to dodge, which she shouldn't have dodged, she really needed to give us an explanation for her reasoning here, or her record here, rather, was a question that she got about her record as a prosecutor, and she dodged it and gave a really disingenuous answer.
2: Take a look. You position yourself as aligned with the progressive movement to make criminal justice less punitive and racist, yet your record as a prosecutor shows that you embraced the tough-on-crime mentality. You've defended California's death penalty, and as California's attorney general, your office opposed the release of nonviolent prisoners and violated the constitutional rights of various drug defendants. How do you reconcile your contradictory past with what you claim to support today?
4: I've been consistent my whole career. Um, My career has been based on an understanding, one, that as a prosecutor, my duty was to seek and make sure that the most vulnerable and voiceless among us are protected. And that is why I have personally prosecuted violent crime that includes rape, child molestation and homicide. And I have also worked my entire career to reform the criminal justice system, understanding, to your point, that it is deeply flawed and in need of repair, which is why, as Attorney General, for example, I led the Department of Justice, which is the largest State Department of Justice in any state, in California and implemented the first of its kind in the nation implicit bias and procedural justice training for police officers. It is why I created the first in the nation for any Department of Justice, an open data initiative that we named Open Justice, for the first time making transparent and showing the public statistics around deaths in custody arrest rates by race and making that information available to the public
1: now that was the most shameless dodge i think of this entire town hall because she didn't address the concerns of the person who asked the question now of course you know as a politician you want to tout all the good things about your record that's just human nature right you want to talk about the good things that you've accomplished but you're not addressing The real issue here, the real criticisms that the left have, the legitimate criticisms, mind you, of your record as a prosecutor. Now, you can talk about all the wonderful things that you've done. Nobody's saying that, you know, you didn't do anything good. We're not trying to take those accomplishments away from you. But, I mean, you did things that are indefensible. You defended wrongful convictions. You defended the use of prison slave labor, You were against a transgender inmate having gender confirmation surgery. These are things that aren't going to go away that you need to address. But instead, she decided to dodge the question. Now, credit where it's due, Jake Tapper actually followed up and asked her, to really give a meaningful, a more meaningful response. And it was clear that she quickly tried to change the subject because she didn't want to talk about her record as a prosecutor.
0: And Riley's question is, I'm sure you've been hearing this too. This is a criticism we're hearing of you from the left as you entered the fray. Um, And they talk about things that you did as attorney general or as prosecutor or or as a district attorney in San Francisco. Let me just ask about one of them, um, which is uh, when you were attorney general, you opposed a, a legislation that would have required your office to investigate fatal shootings involving police officers. Why did you oppose that bill?
4: So I did not oppose the bill. Um, I had a process when I was Attorney General of not weighing in on bills and and initiatives because as Attorney General, I had a responsibility for writing the title and summary, so I did not weigh in. But behind the scenes, I'm going to tell you, I, I compare my record to any prosecutor, any elected prosecutor in this country in terms of the work that I have done to reform the criminal justice system. I am a daughter of parents who met when they were active in the civil rights movement. Nobody had to teach me about the disparities in the criminal justice system. I was born knowing what they are.
1: That right there is exactly why people don't trust politicians. It's infuriating because when we ask you for an answer twice, they try to change the subject, change the conversation and start talking about something else. No, we asked you about this. Give us an answer about this. But she didn't do it. So that was a really poor moment for her, but I don't want to give you the impression that her entire performance was bad because I think just, you know, by and large, stepping back and looking at this town hall as a whole, I mean, it was okay, right? She didn't do bad per se, but she didn't necessarily perform amazingly. In fact, there were some answers that I think she gave a really perfectly reasonable and progressive response to. For example, when the question of Medicare for all came up, I think she had a great answer.
5: What is your solution to ensure that people have access to quality health care at an affordable price? And does that solution involve cutting insurance companies as we know them out of the equation?
4: Um, I believe the solution, and I'm, and I'm actually feel very strongly about this, is that we need to have Medicare for all. That's just the bottom line. To live in a civil society, to be true to the ideals and the spirit of who we say we are as a country, um, we have to appreciate and understand that access to health care should not be thought of as a privilege. It should be understood to be a right. It should be understood to be something that all people should be entitled to so that they can live a productive life, so they can have dignity. And having a system that makes a difference in terms of who receives what based on your income is unconscionable it is cruel and in many situations that i have witnessed inhumane
1: now i was genuinely impressed i think that that was a virtually perfect answer because she's saying what she needs to say you're not going to make it through a democratic party primary if you don't back medicare for all unequivocally and she right there committed to supporting medicare for all there was no you know uh, weasel language about access to health care she said very clearly She supports Medicare for All, and she went on to talk about how these health insurance companies prioritize profits over people. So, great answer. Now, she did, however, kind of stumble when Jake Tapper asked for a follow-up, and I'll tell you where she went wrong.
0: So, for people out there who like their insurance, they don't get to keep it.
4: Well, listen, the idea is that everyone gets access to medical care, and you don't have to go through the process of going through an insurance company, having them give you approval, going through the paperwork, all of the delay that may require. Who of us has, has not had that situation where you've got to wait for approval and the doctor says, well, I don't know if your, your insurance company is going to cover this? Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on.
1: So her answer there wasn't necessarily wrong, but what would have made her answer better is if She attacked the premise of that question because the way that Jake Tapper framed it was that, you know, our overall goal is health insurance when health insurance doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get health care, because there are people now with health insurance that still don't get the health care that they need because they can't afford their deductibles. Or maybe it's the case that they have insurance, but they saw a doctor out of their network and they still have to pay, or their insurance company is refusing to pay for a particular medical procedure that they need. So health insurance in and of itself is not the goal. The goal it's healthcare. So, I wish that she would have been more direct in trying to attack the premise because it's really a disingenuous way to frame this discussion about healthcare. So, she stumbled there, but for the most part, I mean, her answer was okay. It was fine. I think that we have to make sure that we take the profit motive out of the healthcare debate and the industry, generally speaking, and that's basically what she alluded to great now in regards to her supposed support for medicare for all we do need to be savvy and i'm almost positive she's bullshitting all of us and look as a united states senator it's great to have her as an ally but if medicare for all is your number one issue You just simply can't trust someone like Kamala Harris who only recently got on board with Medicare for All less than two years ago. If you really care about getting Medicare for All and getting it codified into law specifically, then you're going to want to go with someone who's been advocating for this policy for decades. And we all know who that person is. It's not Kamala Harris. It's obviously Bernie Sanders. Now, again, By her vocalizing support for Medicare for All, in and of itself, that's a victory. That's good. I commend her for it. We don't want to shit on politicians too much when they come around to the right side of history and do what we want. But with that being said, in a really crowded Democratic Party primary field in 2020, I'm not going to risk going with a bullshitter who's just saying what we want her to say in order to pass a litmus test and then go on to get elected and never actually get medicare for all passed i'm gonna go with the person who's been advocating for medicare for all for decades
3: we interrupt this program to bring you a special report
1: so i usually don't like doing things like this where i break the fourth wall if you will but i'm in the process of editing this video And I can't even finish editing the video. And I find out this. That Kamala Harris already backtracked. (laughs) Like, you can't make this shit up. As I make the video where I'm speculating about her being a bullshitter when it comes to Medicare for All, I can't even put out the video before she proves me right. Wow. So... In other words, we should always trust our instincts about corporate Democrats. So I'm not going to get into the details of that right now. There will be a video on this. Um, But yeah, just wanted to let you know before you comment that I'm aware of her flip-flop and I will absolutely be discussing this because it's very telling. If you can't hold strong when it comes to Medicare for All and you're already backing down just like 12 hours... After getting attacks from the right because of what you said, you're not gonna be the person that's actually gonna accomplish Medicare for All. So, what a joke. Anyways, back to your regularly scheduled humanist report programming. So, that's what I'll say about this. We need to be cognizant of the fact that there are going to be politicians who will tell us what we want to hear, who will speak about Medicare for All in very direct, progressive terms, but when the question comes to them fighting for it, I don't know that they're going to do it. We, we, we saw that Kirsten Gillibrand basically just showed her cards and saying she wouldn't get rid of the filibuster to pass something like Medicare for All. And Kamala Harris also kind of showed her cards with regard to this issue during this town hall because when somebody asked her what would be her number one priority as president, Medicare for All was not her answer.
4: It was tax cuts. What is the very first thing you would do as president of the United States? Pass the Lift Act. Pass the Lift Act, which I mentioned earlier, which is and would end up being one of the most significant middle and working class tax cuts in recent generations. In the United States.
1: Wrong answer. And it's wrong for two reasons. Because as Waleed Shahid pointed out on Twitter, Democrats really shouldn't be perpetuating this idea that taxes are inherently bad, especially if we actually need to raise taxes in order to fund progressive policy programs like Medicare for All. Now, I'm not inherently against her tax proposal. In fact, the Lyft Act has been described by some as universal basic income light. But when we have a healthcare crisis in this country, when we have an impending climate catastrophe, the LIFT Act is just not a priority to me. and probably won't be a priority to other Americans. So it's wrong because, first of all, she's not choosing to prioritize what people want her to prioritize and do. It's wrong because don't demonize the idea of raising taxes because if people will have more money in their pockets by you passing progressive policies, but you need to raise taxes to do so, then we don't want to communicate to them that taxes are bad. You're doing the Republican Party's bidding for them, either wittingly or unwittingly. So don't demonize taxes. Now, another thing that I wanted to get to was a quick bit with regard to climate change, because I don't wanna be too down on her for climate change. I have called her out via Twitter because she hasn't really spoken about climate change, but thankfully somebody asked her about the Green New Deal and she did commit to uh, supporting it. We've been hearing more about a Green New Deal Mm -hmm. to fight climate change. You have yet to fully
0: endorse or reject it. Will you fully endorse the Green New Deal tonight?
4: I I support a Green New Deal, and I will tell you why. Climate change is an existential threat to us, and we have got to deal with the reality of it. I'm not
1: 100% convinced that I believe her, but nonetheless, I still do think that that was a good answer. Now, the area where I think she shined the most during this entire town hall was in response to a question about gun policy. This was basically as good as it gets when it comes to answers
4: from politicians. We have got to have smart gun safety laws in this country, and we've got to stop buying this false choice. You can be in favor of the Second Amendment and also understand that there is no reason in a civil society that we have assault weapons around communities that can kill babies and police officers. And I'm just going to be very, very blunt about this. You know, for years I've asked folks um, in D.C., you know, is the NRA real or is it a paper tiger? Like, what's the deal there? And the, the feedback is, little 50-50. But here's what I've witnessed and what we have all witnessed. We have witnessed a case where a seated member of Congress, acting in her official capacity as a member of the United States Congress, was shot and permanently injured. Her name is Gabby Giffords. The people who work with her every day, who know her, you know, we have colleagues, we know them, we know their children, we break bread, we share holiday moments with them. The people who knew her didn't act. She was acting in her official capacity, not on vacation somewhere. You would think even out of self-interest they would have acted. They failed to act. Twenty six- and seven-year-old babies were massacred, in Connecticut. They failed to act. Here's what I think. I think that somebody should have required, and this is going to sound very harsh, I think somebody should have required all those members of Congress to go in a room, in a locked room, no press, no one, nobody else, and look at the autopsy photographs of those babies. And then you vote your conscience. This has become a political issue. And it is, it, it, this, there is no reason why we cannot have reasonable gun safety laws in this country. And guess what, guys? Here's the reality of it also. We're not waiting for a good idea. We have the good ideas, an assault weapons ban, background checks, right? We're not waiting for a tragedy. We have seen the worst human tragedies we can imagine. So what's missing What's missing is people in the United States Congress to have the courage to act the right way.
1: So yeah, I I really think that that was probably her strongest moment of the night. And it's clear she's demonstrating that she knows how to work a crowd. She knows what to say to get applause. And she knows how to get people to support her. But with that being said, you know, there were some mixed moments. She was kind of wishy-washy on student loan debt. Are you going to cancel student loan debt? What's your actual policy here? Do you support tuition-free public colleges and universities? You know, um... She didn't give a satisfactory answer when a student asked her about that, and, you know, just by and large, I think that you can summarize this town hall concisely by looking at a tweet from Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk. He says, My conclusion on the Harris Town Hall, her best moment was the flat answer on Medicare for All. There was no hedging or caveats. The rest of it was pretty toast and vague, very Bill Clinton-esque or Obama-esque. She's a politically talented centrist at a time we need a radical. Exactly. Now, a lot of people, just normal Americans, know that we need someone who isn't going to be another incrementalist. But I don't know that they're going to be as savvy as people who are everyday political observers like you and I, who tune in and watch the news and read up on these politicians every single day because she's really good at marketing herself as someone who is progressive. And The average person might not be privy to the fact that she has a horrible record as a prosecutor or that she only recently endorsed the idea of Medicare for All because people are just getting familiar with her now. But in spite of that, she's good at marketing herself as a progressive and may be able to pass as a progressive with the general public. And we all know this because according to ratings for this town hall, it was one of the most watched town halls ever. So make no mistake about it. Don't doubt what Kamala Harris will be able to accomplish in this Democratic Party primary. I think that we're seeing signs that she could very well be one of the last people standing. And if you truly want to make sure that a true progressive, a trustworthy progressive like Bernie Sanders gets elected, then you need to make sure that you go the extra mile and campaign for him, phone bang for him, canvas for him, do what you can, because there is ground support for Kamala Harris, whether you want to admit it or not. And if you want Bernie A true progressive to get elected, then make sure that you don't sit this election out and you actually take action to support that candidate. Because Kamala Harris is no Hillary Clinton. She's more politically savvy, she's more politically astute, and I think she's able to convince people that she is progressive. But in actuality, I think that we all know what to expect in the event she's elected. Another centrist, another Bill Clinton or Obama-esque politician, as Kyle Kalinske states, that's going to do a couple of good things as president but not address the crises the many crises that we face as americans so um yeah it it was a town hall that was just okay less than 24 hours after kamala harris committed to supporting medicare for all unequivocally and gave what i thought was a fantastic answer in response to a question about medicare for all she already chose to walk back her comments So as CNN's Andrew Kaczynski tweets, Kamala Harris is backtracking on her calls to eliminate all private health insurance in supporting Medicare for All, with an advisor and her spokesman saying she's open to more moderate plans preserving the private health insurance industry. Now, after her staff put a little bit of pressure on him because he used the word backtrack, Correctly so, mind you. He added, deleting this tweet because multiple Harris campaign spokespeople would like it to be clarified. Harris said at CNN's town hall she supports eliminating private insurance. Her campaign advisor would like to emphasize she's also open to bills that preserve private health care. In other words, Andrew, you had it right the first time. She backtracked. So now what we're left with is an article that states Kamala Harris is open to multiple paths to Medicare for all. Now, before we get to the article in question, let me just decode that for you. It means she's not serious about Medicare for All because if you're already showing that you are willing to compromise before the real fight even begins, you are not serious about Medicare for All. And This speaks to the other candidates as well, like Kirsten Gillibrand and Cory Booker, who all of a sudden had this epiphany and decided to support Medicare for All conspicuously, two years before an election, but nonetheless, they supported it, which is good. But it shows that this sudden evolution, even if it's a win, it still means you're not ready to lead on this issue. And Kamala Harris is absolutely not willing to lead because think about this. The minute you propose Medicare for All, hypothetically speaking, let's say you become president, you introduce Medicare for All, do you understand the battle that you are going to have to fight You need to know what you're getting yourself into. But Kamala Harris, she already showed to us that, look, even in the most minimal backlash that I received, that's enough for me to cave and walk back my comments. She's not serious about Medicare for All. Now, as the article reports, by stating she would eliminate private insurers as a necessary part of implementing Medicare for All, California Senator Kamala Harris during a CNN town hall Monday night sent a shockwave through the national healthcare debate. Harris's comments underscored the extent to which a move to single payer would radically overhaul the current system and, in frankly addressing one of the transition's most politically difficult steps, stepped directly into her critics' crosshairs. Republicans attacked Harris within minutes of her remarks, tweeting that she says she wants to eliminate private health insurance, even if you like your plan. By Tuesday morning, former Starbucks boss Howard Schultz was piling on and fellow billionaire potential presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, was dismissing the entire plan as a fiscally ruinous pipe dream. As the furor grew, a Harris advisor on Tuesday signaled that the candidate would also be open to the more moderate health care reform plan which would preserve the industry being floated by other congressional Democrats. It represents a compromised position that risks angering Medicare for All proponents who view eliminating private health insurance as key to enacting their comprehensive reform. Both the advisor and Harris National Press Secretary, Ian Sams, said her willingness to consider alternate routes to a single-payer system should not cast doubt on her commitment to the policy. Medicare for All is the plan that she believes will solve the problem and get all Americans covered, period, Sam's told CNN. She has co-sponsored other pieces of legislation that she sees as a path to getting us there, but this is the plan she is running on. Okay, so either one of two things is likely true in this situation. Either she personally does support Medicare for All, which is unlikely, but she just doesn't have the courage to actually fight as hard as she needs to, to get it codified into law, or... She's backing down because she's just not serious about Medicare for All and doesn't actually support it, which I think is the more likely situation. But rather than trying to speculate about her intentions, it's clear that she's bullshitting us. It's important to understand why we have to get the for-profit motivator out of the healthcare discussion. Because think about this, even if we accomplish Medicare for All, but it coexists with private health insurance you're looking at death by a thousand cuts because so long as that profit incentive exists like a virus, it will infect the Medicare for All system that we fought so hard for, right? It's going to lead to partial privatization and then more components of it being privatized. So you have to make sure that you eliminate the profit motive entirely. Now, is that's still preferable to what we have now, where you have for-profit and private health insurance companies, or excuse me, for-profit and public existing simultaneously? Well, sure, but understand that if you want a Medicare for All system long-term, you've got to strip away that profit incentive. Kamala Harris just vocalized the fact that she's not serious about that. And To go so far as to co-sponsor other bills that are half measures that won't put us on the path towards Medicare for All, that shows she is just trying to say what she needs to say in order to get elected. That's all that this is about. So I am absolutely disappointed, but not surprised at all. Because even if I could acknowledge and give credit where it's due that she gave a phenomenal answer when she was asked about Medicare for All and said everything she needed to say, for the most part... Well, your willingness to back down shows that you're not serious when it comes to Medicare for all because what you need to do is stake out a position and then plant your feet firmly in the ground expecting attacks against you. If we get Medicare for All, it's not going to be an easy fight. It's not going to be like, oh, well, we have a majority of Democrats in the Senate and in the House and now in the presidency. We just pass it. It's as simple as that. This will be a fight for our lives. And it's not only going to require a commitment from lawmakers, but a commitment from people like us. We're going to have to take to the streets to get it. If we pass Medicare for All in a system where we haven't achieved campaign finance reform first you don't understand the amount of pressure we will have to put on lawmakers to not cave. So the fact that you're already showing the willingness to cave, it means you're not ready for this fight and you're not serious about single payer. So functionally, you're not an advocate for single payer if you're already willing to back down. And, you know, just paying lip service to the idea of Medicare for all isn't enough. Now, You need to prove to us that you're going to fight for it. And you just failed right out of the gate, Kamala. Shameful. We're at a point now where the calls for Medicare for All have become so overwhelming that the Democratic Party knows that they have to deliver for their base because they are demanding it now. 70% of Americans overall support Medicare for All, A slim majority of Republicans support Medicare for all, and nearly 90% of Democrats support Medicare for all. We've planted our feet firmly in the ground, and we are refusing to budge. And that scares Democrats because they know that they've got to deliver on something. Otherwise, there will be hell to pay. Now, thankfully, it's the case that a majority of Democrats in the House of Representatives already support Medicare for All, but only a handful of Senate Democrats back Medicare for All, and they're currently scrambling to propose something that would appease us that's not Medicare for All. So we see a public option being proposed. We're seeing... You know fixes to the Affordable Care Act. We're seeing them increasing the eligibility pool, or trying to increase the eligibility pool for Medicare, or allowing people to buy in at younger ages, or at 55 and older. So you're seeing them basically trying to dangle something in front of us in hopes that will bite. But we've made it very clear: when we have 70 percent of the country on our side, we would be idiots to back down so we're not going to back down but nonetheless that hasn't stopped some senate democrats from trying and as a Politico article by Alice Miranda Olstein and Adam Cancren points out, several likely 2020 Democratic presidential candidates are pushing plans for something short of universal healthcare, a move already creating friction within the party's empowered left wing, which has panned any attempts to water down the progressive dream of a single-payer system. One idea gaining support is allowing some demographic groups to buy into Medicare earlier than age 65 while still incrementally building on Obamacare coverage gains. It's easy to say Medicare for all and make a good speech, but see no action, said Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, a potential 2020 candidate who has a proposal that would give retiring police and firefighters access To Medicare before 65. I want to see action. It's a pathway brown and many in the party establishment have gravitated toward in recent months, one that balances the desire to make a Trump-era lurch leftward with memories of the political blowback Democrats endured for a decade after their last revamp of the nation's health system. So the Democrats, with their eyes on 2020, have introduced at least eight plans for expanding health coverage beyond Obamacare's gains. They range from modest Medicare reforms to more ambitious, restructurings that would extend government-run care to millions of new patients, an array of options that fall short of campaign trail promises for full Medicare for All. That spectrum includes Senator Debbie Stabenow's bill allowing patients to buy into Medicare starting at age 55, which Brown also supports, and Tim Kaine and Michael Bennett's plan to create a Medicare-style public option to compete with private insurers on up to bigger revamps like Senators Jeff Merkley and Chris Murphy and their expansion of Medicare eligibility to nearly all Americans. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii would let everyone purchase Medicaid. Those options have been characterized by supporters as more practical alternatives to the completely government-run system popularized by Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Pramila Jayapal. Now, in addition to these bills, Elizabeth Warren is someone who also co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' bill, like uh, Jeff Merkley and Brian Schatz, but opted for a compromise plan to get something that's short of Medicare for All. Now, why would you waste your time using precious political capital on anything but Medicare for All, especially when most of the country now is with you on Medicare for All? It's because these Democrats are getting cold feet and they're trying to weasel their way out of Medicare for All. So understand that if you have one of these senators, mine is Jeff Merkley, that co-sponsored Bernie's bill but then went on to co-sponsor or create their own bill that's not Medicare for All, you need to go to town halls when they come to your city and confront them. Ask them why they're willing to compromise on a plan that 70% of the American public supports. It's about accountability because if you simply... just sit back and expect these Democrats to do the right thing when they have lobbyists and health insurance industry puppets in their ear all the time, then they're not going to do the right thing. So this is about us doing our part and keeping constant pressure on them. But understand one thing, even if you may feel disappointed at the fact that they're trying to propose some other weasel, you know, non-Medicare for All bill, Understand that it's a sign that we are winning because just the mere fact that they know they have to act in and of itself is a victory because we've made so much noise about Medicare for all that they can't not hear us. So now it's just them trying, you know, it's their last attempt to get us to uh, bite on anything that's not Medicare for all. It's not going to happen. Now, one thing I want to touch on is the House. Medicare for All bill. So, formally, it was H.R. 676, but John Conyers, who was the former co-sponsor of that bill, is no longer in Congress. So, we needed someone new to take up that mantle. And that individual, thankfully, is Pramila Jayapal, someone who I initially felt safe as the new sponsor, the new person to take on the mantle of Medicare for All in the House. However, we see some red flags coming out of that development because not only is Representative Pramila Jayapal opting to rewrite HR 676, which is the gold standard, but she's doing it in secret while not really consulting with people and organizations more specifically who have been advocating for Medicare for All for decades. Now, as Russell Mockaber of Common Dreams reports, Now, with Democrats in charge of the House, the Medicare for All single-payer bill is being rewritten, watered down, and renumbered. For the past 16 years, H.R. 676 was our gold standard bill defining a national improved Medicare for All single-payer healthcare system for the United States, said Margaret Flowers of Health Over Profit for Everyone. It was based on the 2003 Physicians Working Group proposal by Physicians for a National Health Program. Now that the Democrats can no longer ignore their base, is demanding a single-payer health system, we have lost both HR 676 by number and its status as the gold standard. From what we have heard, as we have still not seen the text of the draft as promised, the new health bill being written by Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal has an unnecessarily long transition period and maintains the for-profit providers in the system. The delayed transition means more preventable deaths and suffering. Keeping the for-profits means higher costs and lower quality of care. Jayapal's bill is being rewritten behind closed doors. Last month, single-payer advocates called on Jayapal to share the draft text of HR 676 with the single-payer movement for review and input. She has refused. Now, let me re-emphasize something here. We haven't seen the bill yet, which is a problem in and of itself, but we can't necessarily say that it is in fact being watered down, but Given the indications that we've received thus far, it doesn't look too good. Now, rewriting H.R. 676 when health advocacy groups have deemed it the gold standard, that's troubling, but I could I could deal with that if you're actually improving it. Um, there are some improvements that you can do. You can expand abortion access in there and actually fund abortion, which the older version of H.R. 676 did not. I think that would be a phenomenal improvement, but... As far as we know, it's getting watered down. Now again, we don't know what the final version will look like, so we'll have to wait to reserve judgment, but let's let's look at this. Okay, so in the event For-profit institutions are maintained in the new version of HR 676. Why is that problematic? Because it will inevitably lead to death by a thousand cuts. Because when you have that for-profit motive in the system itself, well, there's going to be a fight to privatize portions of our Medicare for all system, and it's going to get watered down. It may not go away. It may still be preferable than what we have now. But nonetheless, if you want true Medicare for all, then you need to make sure that the profit motive is removed. And it was from H.R. 676, hence why it was deemed the gold standard. But now, it seems as if it's up in the air as to why that would be the case. Now, another thing is the delays, So, HR 676, the way that it was structured before, because it was a framework, was that if we pass Medicare for All in April of 2022, then January 1st, 2023, it gets fully implemented. There's no long wait period like the Affordable Care Act where it's gradually rolled out. Certain portions are implemented in one year and after and so on and so forth. Now, look, this is kind of a mixed area. There's some people that would argue, well, you know, it's important that there is this gradual rollout. Because if you think about this, we need people in the health insurance industry to have some time to be able to find a different job. And I get that argument, but it's less persuasive than the argument against the wait time. Because if we have a wait time, what you're doing is you're making yourself susceptible to attacks, Now, we talked about this in the last Humanist Report Patreon live chat, and we had Andrea Witte, who went over how we pay for Medicare for All with me, explain that this is something that's troubling because think about this. If you pass Medicare for All in 2022 and it's not fully implemented until 2029, well, you allow for a long period of time where Republicans can come to power and then water it down. They can build a coalition, form a tax on it, and if americans even if they support it now if they don't fully know all the benefits that will come to fruition with medicare for all then that allows them to be duped by republicans and health insurance providers and they could think oh well maybe it is as bad as they say because i haven't seen the benefits so the reason why um programs like social security have been protected And any time a president has tried to privatize it, even partially, they had to back down because the opposition to it from the public was fierce. Well, it's because the public knows what they're getting. So we need the public to know immediately the benefits of Medicare for All so Republicans will be less inclined to touch it. Another thing that is being talked about here with regard to this delayed rollout is if these health insurance companies and their CEOs know that their time is limited and the ship is sinking, so to speak? Are they going to stay on that ship and go down with it, knowing that their days are numbered? No. They're going to move on to the next money-making venture, meaning that we'll leave some people temporarily without healthcare as they wait for Medicare for All to kick in. So, it's just, there's more risks in allowing for this delay. It's not a deal-breaker. I would still fiercely advocate for, you know, Medicare for All in that state. But it's just, when you have the gold standard, I just don't see a reason to rewrite it. Now, trying to be fair to Pramila Jayapal, she's probably doing this because she wants to make it easier to pass. Because in order for Medicare for All to pass, well, these bills have to reach parity. The House version and the Senate version have to match in order for it to be signed into law. We all know this, right? So, By making it more like Bernie Sanders' bill, and Bernie Sanders' bill does, in fact, have the delay, you know, it's better than not having Medicare for All, but ideally, healthcare advocates have been hoping to bring Bernie Sanders' bill into parity with HR 676 because that's just the better version. Myself, I'm going to wait and see... What it looks like because it's not like, oh, well, this is Medicare for all and this is the final version. You can always rewrite it. You can add amendments and it can be reintroduced again when, uh, you know, Democrats actually have full control of government. But I mean, it just, we need to make sure that we're clear that we want Medicare for all and we have to be savvy and know about the details and why this delay is bad and why the for profit incentive has to be completely eliminated. Now, I don't want to shit on Pramila Jayapal because I think she's done a lot of great things and I'm very thankful that we have someone who's taking on the mantle of Medicare for All in the House and being the chief advocate for it. But we just need to understand that there's no reason to water it down because if you're watering it down, you're already kind of conceding and buckling before the real fight even begins. So if Democrats are willing to concede on certain aspects of Medicare for All now when we're not even discussing it, on the House floor, that's a problem. So that's less problematic than what's being done in the Senate. But I actually, I'm not too mad at what senators are doing because it just it it it, it tells me that they know they have to act, and this is their last-ditch effort to try to muster up support from some other half for some other half measure, and it's not going to happen. Now, the thing that I find most disappointing is Sherrod Brown who a lot of people deemed as a progressive. But throughout the years, he's kind of showed that he's not progressive. He's certainly not a Bernie Sanders, and he's not even as progressive as Elizabeth Warren. He didn't co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, and yet people widely consider him a progressive. And he's done things that are phenomenal. He supports policies that are pro-workers' rights and unions that are phenomenal. But if you don't back Medicare for All then that tells me that you have this moral blind spot because you're okay with a system where certain people are left out. Because think about this. Even if you drastically improve our current for-profit system and we have a public option, that would expand access to millions of people. But you're still saying that you have to have money to have healthcare in this country. You still need money to buy into a public option. And even if the cost would be cheaper... In that system, because you're force, forcing these private health insurers to compete with a public option, the government run plan, which would obviously be cheaper because it's more efficient and whatnot. Well, you're still saying that in order to have healthcare, you need money. So, at a time when 70% of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, support Medicare for all, if we back down now, we're just idiots. So, it's on us to hold these public officials accountable and not let them back down. Because they're going to get cold feet. Even people on our side might feel pressure to back down because they're facing so much backlash. But understand that this is our chance. If public opinion polls go out of favor for Medicare for All because we stop talking about it, let's say, 10 years down the line, we may not get this opportunity again. So we have to be very firm and direct When we say it's Medicare for All, that's all we're going to expect. Now, somebody on Twitter pointed out, if it's not Medicare for All, I send it back. Exactly. Now, people may say that, you know, you're being unreasonable and you just have these purity tests and litmus tests. But understand, again, we have the moral argument, we have the moral high ground, and also we have the political argument. Because if you deliver Medicare for All, then you will be infinitely more popular because 70% of the American people support it. And you have to account for public opinion decreasing once the debate begins, right? Because Fox News will attack it relentlessly if it's discussed on the House or Senate floors. But with 70%, we have a cushion. We'll still have a majority, even if it goes down 10 points. So now is the time to act. Don't let these politicians pull one over on you and convince you that you know this other option is more prog- pragmatic because it's easier to pass we want full medicare for all where healthcare is free at the point of service that's all that we're asking for and it's all that we are going to accept and if you're not going to deliver that for us we're going to find someone who will simple as that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been bombarded by attacks anonymously so from establishment Pro corporate Democrats, because first and foremost, I think that they don't like that she has all of this popularity and she's a newcomer. So I think that jealousy is part of it. But they also are still butthurt about the fact that she is not backing away from this idea that we need to primary corporate Democrats who become out of touch. So what are they doing in order to kind of stick it to her? They are trying to, quote, give her a taste of her own medicine by recruiting someone to primary her in 2020. That's what they're spending their time doing, um, which is great. So as Scott Wong of The Hill explains, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has infuriated colleagues by aligning with the progressive outside group that's threatening to primary entrenched Democrats. Now, some of those lawmakers are turning the tables on her and are discussing recruiting a primary challenger to run against the social media sensation. At least one House Democrat has been privately urging members of the New York delegation to recruit a local politician from the Bronx or Queens to challenge Ocasio-Cortez, What I have recommended to the New York delegation is that you find her a primary opponent and make her a one-term congressperson, the Democratic lawmaker who requested anonymity told The Hill. You've got numerous council people and state legislators who've been waiting 20 years for that seat. I'm sure they can find numerous people who want that seat in that district. No potential challengers to Ocasio-Cortez have yet emerged, but one New York political insider noted that the Queens and Bronx district is home to many ambitious politicians who are close to Crowley and don't like that a political outsider took his seat. She's pissing off a lot of people and has probably made a lot of enemies. A lot of people who are furious with her are Joe's allies, including some named Crowley, said the insider referring to Crowley's cousin, Elizabeth Crowley, a former New York City councilwoman. She is a woman. She's been moving more to the left. She would be someone interesting. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's team was asked to respond to this article, and this one courageous Democrat who remained anonymous, you know, their plan to primary her, and she basically said what we all expected. Bring it on. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing, but she's remaining principled. She's saying, I back primaries across the board. So that means you want to, you know, recruit a corporate stooge to run against me? Bring it on. Because if you want to live in a democracy, you need to accept that when the status quo stops representing the people, we are allowed to bring forward someone who's actually going to represent the people. And one thing that really bothered me about this article, or specifically enraged me about this article, rather, is that The sheer hubris of these establishment pricks like Joe Crowley who feel entitled to that seat and other people who supported Joe Crowley but were simply, quote, waiting their turn. That seat didn't belong to you, Joe. That seat belonged to the people in New York 14. And I love how there were people who were waiting in line, you know, that felt as if, oh, well, I'm going to be next for that seat. But she just leapfrogged all of them. And they don't like that, because in politics, you're supposed to sit back, be a good stooge and tool for the establishment, and wait your turn until they anoint you in that position. But Ocasio-Cortez didn't do that. She didn't wait her turn. And she was one of the few people to actually successfully mount a challenge against the corporate Democrat. And... Not only did she beat them, but when they see her popularity and all that she's doing to move the Overton window back to the left in America, they hate it even more because this is outraging their donors. So if you want a primary Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, do it because I would love to see a corporate stooge get curb stomped by a progressive. And you know, the difference between this anonymous Democrat and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is that she's honest enough to say I support primary challenges. Progressives are honest enough, like Ro Khanna, to say, I support primary challenges. And if that means you're going to primary me, then so be it. We live in a democracy, so we're going to allow democracy to take place. And whatever happens, happens. But they can't even say it without requesting anonymity. They're a bunch of cowards. Absolute clowns. And look, what we're hearing, I've said this before, So not to be redundant, but we're hearing the cries from dinosaurs who see the asteroid. It's going across the sky, and they're acknowledging that their time is limited. They're going to go extinct very soon, and there's going to be a new wave of progressivism in the United States. Millennials are more inclined to back socialism. The next generation, Gen Z, prefers socialism. So there's a progressive left movement that you are not going to be able to stop. So either you get on board the progressive bus or you get run over by it. It's your choice. It's
6: not enough to be progressive on 90% of the issues. It's that 10% of the issues that determines whether somebody has been illegally evicted from the neighborhood that they grew up in. It determines whether or not a council member sides with rezoning their neighborhood. It determines whether or not these oligarchs who are buying up our apartments around the city are paying taxes or not. Why is it we're able to give them tax breaks, but we don't have the money to build affordable housing? We are in crisis. We need to take this seriously. And as public advocate, I am not only not taking any form of developer money, whether through loopholes or not, but I am taking them on directly, investigating them, and I'm investigating city agencies, or like the MTA, where we have a real estate developer sitting on the MTA, or NYCHA that's having closed-door meetings because they're owned by developers. We have to start understanding that these two work hand in hand. The developers in the city are making our city inequitable and they're driving out all, all from middle class, higher middle class to low income in this city, making it completely unaffordable.
3: Hey everyone, I'm here with Namiki Konst. You all know who she is. She's running for public advocate in New York City. Namiki, thank you so much for joining the program.
6: Thank you, Mike. Um, I'm so grateful that uh, you guys are paying attention to this very, very uh, Small, not a lot of people know about the Public Advocate's office, let alone this race that's on February 26th. So I'm just so grateful that you're giving it attention.
3: Absolutely. And in fact, do you want to explain to us what this race is all about and what you could do as Public Advocate?
6: Sure. So the Public Advocate is second in line to the mayor of New York City. Uh, New York City is, is the largest city in the country. We produce more wealth than anywhere else on the planet but we have the worst income inequality than anywhere else in the country at the worst moment in history. So this office, while it is second to the mayor, it's supposed to be the watchdog of the city. It's supposed to hold all of New York City agencies and government and lawmakers accountable. It's supposed to hold special interests accountable. Uh, That was the intent of the office when it was set up about 25 years ago. Uh, In my opinion, I don't think it's ever been, um, it's ever had the strength that it's, it's supposed to, I think um, the office's investigative powers have been limited, but you know, for a moment like this, where the city is so unaffordable, um, I think it's important that the office actually does represent the people uh, and actually is is taking on these big interests. And uh, that's actually why I'm running. This is a position that's supposed to be investigative. It's supposed to be um, a position that's advocating for progress and representing all New Yorkers. Uh, but more importantly. I am actually willing to take on the developers of the city. And that is at the root of the crisis in New York. We have a real estate develop, uh, development class that has been you know, deregulated, not paying taxes, has sucked the city dry of literally hundreds of trillions of dollars over the last 40 years. And it's time that the public advocate be willing to separate himself or herself from politics and from this industry and take them on head on.
3: Right. And going over your platform, it's incredibly ambitious and it's, I think, what's needed. So, for example, you are proposing a $30 minimum wage. Now, people across the country, they might scoff at that. You know, the usual people who aren't even on board with 15. But can you explain why that's actually really necessary?
6: Yeah. I mean, listen, this is New York City. Uh, it costs $6 to get a cup of coffee. I have a cup of coffee here right now. And, and it's not because our coffee beans are better and it's not because uh, the, the coffee shops are fancier. It really has to do with rent. Uh, the city is, is the rent costs are astronomically high. People are being priced out of their own neighborhoods. They're being illegally evicted. Uh, council members are rezoning communities. And small businesses are shutting down, not just because of, of companies like Amazon before they came to Queens, uh, but because, you know, these developers have been holding properties hostage and then jacking up uh, rent prices so that small businesses, restaurants, coffee shops, uh, really struggling to get by and they and they put the cost on us um, and so the, their number one concern is You know, they can't afford to pay their workers a higher wage And I get that I really do because they're being crushed by higher rents So what we're doing with this $30 minimum wage is we're saying businesses with over 75 employees so Usually get big big tax breaks many of them not all of them um, and and the municipal government they can afford to pay $30 an hour $30 an hour is still not enough to pay for a one-bedroom apartment in New York City. There are countless, I mean seriously, you can just just Google it, go online and Google $15 an hour pay for one-bedroom apartment, and see all the different news stories that come up about how $15 an hour is not enough for any family across the United States to pay for a one-bedroom apartment. It sure as heck, it was great progress, it was a huge fight, Uh, but unfortunately in New York, the fifteen dollars an hour wage only applies to New York City, and it was just enacted. It's not uh, reflected with inflation. It was. It took many years to get to this point, and it's it's really a poverty wage. So we need to take it up a notch. We need to start the conversation at thirty dollars an hour. And and just to add to that, you know, a lot of the pushback I get is from conservatives or folks who really maybe don't um, aren't familiar with the economic situation, uh, and they say, oh well, it's supposed to be for. You know, low wage workers, uh, kids out of school, and people working at um, fast food restaurants. Yes, but but most people who are working at fast food restaurants are single mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, most people who are low wage workers, as we like to, as they like to say, are are working people who are working several jobs. This is the economy that we live in today. Uh, it is not high schoolers. It is people who are just trying to survive in a city that is just jacking up the prices at every single. Um, take they can, whether it's the MTA or, uh you know, whether it's your apartment costs or just your cup of coffee um, or childcare. It is very, very hard to live in this city uh, because it is so expensive and wages are historically low. So we need a $30 minimum wage and we need to take on these developers who are making it so unaffordable to live here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that makes sense. If you know about, you know, the cost of living there, then it's not as far-fetched as people like to make it seem. Now, I wanted to, because there's a lot of issues that you've been touching on throughout the course of this race. Can you talk about what would be a couple of priorities for you just within the first year? Because there's a lot for you to do. You're going to have your hands full. So what do you think you would try to take on first?
6: Yeah. So uh, the first thing that I would announce on day one is I think that the public advocate should not be in succession to the mayor I think it needs to be a truly independent office an office that uh, is is not influenced by politics that is not a stepping stone for people who are termed out in the city council or who don't want to go to Albany anymore right now we're in a race uh, that has is pretty much narrowed down to 10 people 10 or so those are who are going to be on the debate stage uh, we are the only campaign on that stage who does not take money from real estate developers has never in the past, never will in the future, Uh, corporate money, uh, lobbyist money, PAC money, and we don't use loopholes. And the loopholes are something that I want to take on on day one. We have a city uh, campaign finance system in our city, which is a step in the right direction. But one thing I'm learning through this process is that in order to receive the matching funds the city offers, for every dollar that I raise, uh, it could be matched with $8 from the city, anywhere from $10 to $250. $250. But what that does uh, is it, it actually mobilizes these, these mega donors to call up all their friends and family and give $250. Most average folks can't give $250. Uh, our average contribution is the lowest by far in the race, at around, uh, you know, our our numbers say oh, uh, it's around 40. The CFB says 70, and that's because they don't count anything below $10. So Mm. when you factor in contributions below $10, it's much lower. So, um, you know, they they won't give you the money until you raise $62,500. And the deadline is next week. And we are uh, about $10,000 away from the deadline, uh, from, from the goal, from the threshold. But, you know, it really is biased towards folks who say they come from a law firm and the law firm, you're a partner. All you have to do is call up all the lawyers of the law firm, and if it's a big law firm, they'll give their two hundred fifty dollars, and then you're done, just like that. That's public financing, or uh, you know, they, they say that they don't t- they are not taking corporate money, but they're taking the CEO's money, and they're taking the CEO's wife or husband's money, and their kids' money, and their sisters and brothers, and it just becomes this scheme. So I think um, the second thing I would I would I would take on. On day one, is this campaign finance system, and really make it a true, true public finance system. Uh, and somebody needs to advocate for that and understand these these tricks. Uh, it won't be popular with a lot of these these bought politicians, but I do think that there are a lot of folks who who would be on our side. So, so the third uh, thing, other than pushing for a thirty dollars minimum wage, um, and taking on the real estate industry, which is a more long term uh, plan, this office is is way too bureaucratic. It is. Supposed to be the office that New Yorkers go to when the city does not respond to their needs. You look at NYCHA, which is uh, the public housing in New York City. It is the largest landlord in the country, and it is the worst landlord in the country. There's a rat infestation. There's no hot water, no heat often. Uh, there is a very famous lead paint crisis. And it's owed um thirty-two billion dollars. It will soon be in a couple of years 40 billion. And now HUD is saying that they want to partly take over NYCHA and privatize it. But that's the scheme. The scheme in New York and across the, the world really is suck cities dry by not taxing the wealthy, by not taxing the developers in this city. And then they either privatize institutions and and, and, and um you know public entities. While they simultaneously jack up the costs on working people, and so uh, one thing that I will be doing on day one is is decentralizing this office, calling for a public advocate in every city sing- single city council district to make sure that if you're from East New York or you're from Staten Island or you're from you know you're you're from East Harlem, uh, you have somebody from your neighborhood that you trust to go to that is independent and is trained to investigate. So that if NYCHA is not delivering you the hot water and heat, it doesn't get jammed up in a bureaucracy. It's dealt with uh, right there in your neighborhood. And then if it's not taken care of, it goes to, obviously, um, uh, the larger office. Uh, but, you know, we have to start
3: in,
6: uh, entities at the local level so that they don't become these bureaucratic nightmares. Um, and, and, you know, that's not a left or right issue. Bureaucracy is a problem. And, and you know, we find out that the MTA is... Is using signals from a hundred years ago, and night is having closed door meetings. I mean, this is what happens when you don't have a public advocate's office that is truly independent and investigative. And so, I'm hoping to bring that to the office.
3: We're going to get to what people can do to help you out, but before we do that, I wanted to touch on something just real quick here. So, the governor of New York, Amazon Cuomo, as he calls himself, courted Amazon. What is your take on this? Um, is there anything you can do in this situation where it's basically you know a corporate I don't even know what to call it at this point. It's just a shameless corporatization, you know, of the state to get the headquarters in New York City. So what is your take on this situation? And is there anything that you could or would do?
6: Yeah, so this is becoming a hot, I mean, it's been a hot issue, but it's in this election, uh, it's becoming a hot issue because there are several candidates in this race. who I'm running uh, against who may say they're progressive on issues, but they signed a letter uh, not, not, you know, saying, oh, we we'll look into Amazon. No, they signed a letter that said in the first line, we as a united elected body urge Amazon to invest in New York City. Now, I live in Queens. I actually live very close to where uh, the Amazon headquarters is, is going to be set up. Technically, I'm in Long Island City right as, you know, right now as we speak. So, you know, we feel this very, very closely in our neighborhood. It's very hot. Uh, but when you go to Long Island City, you know, this is not just about giving a ginormous tax break. To the world's wealthiest man, a helicopter pad to the world's wealthiest man, or or inviting. I mean, listen. Before this letter, a lot of a lot of elected officials say, "Oh, well, the you know the, the the deal was happening behind closed doors, and so that's why we're against it now." No, 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 no. We knew what Amazon was. It's not like Amazon was invented a year ago. We knew when Amazon began, we knew the effects of Amazon by looking at Seattle and the homeless crisis in Seattle. Or you could go to Austin and see how the city council is suing Amazon now to get their incentives back because they didn't follow through on their deal. And what we've learned uh, as of yesterday is that Amazon is not even going to bring unions to the table as they agreed. So I I think it's time that the governor and the mayor of New York pull out of this deal. They are not honest brokers. Uh, What we've also seen that no other candidate wants to touch is that this was a real estate deal. Before they even started having negotiations, uh, there were developers who knew, it's like insider trading, right? Mm -hmm. They knew that this deal was going to happen. And so they started building high rises and selling the apartments to Amazon employees. So if a real, if a public advocate was was really paying attention to what was happening, they would see that, oh, there's a hundred Amazon employees that just uh, bought an apart- you know, bought up apartments around this empty site. I wonder what's gonna happen there. <laughs> this is what it means to be an investigative reporter. You see those things are trained to look that way and to stop it before it becomes a crisis, to raise red flags, to pay attention to those red flags, uh, because what we know is gonna happen to Long Island City is not just that there's these huge tax breaks that are sucking the city dry, but the redevelopment of that neighborhood Ah, uh, came with rezoning that was caused. You know, there, there was a council member who was very much part of that process who's now against Amazon. But you know, you cannot criticize the Amazon deal if you do not talk about the rezoning of that neighborhood, which is hurting working people. It's hurting immigrants, and that is the fabric of this city. And if you don't have working people uh, affording to live in New York, you really don't have a New York City anymore. You have a you have a Dubai.
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's really interesting because, yeah, you're you're right. You are an investigative reporter. You're the one who revealed a lot of the, you know, the corruption in the DNC with the consultants and whatnot. So you kind of have this sense to sniff out this type of corruption and all of these wrongdoings and, you know, really the corporate takeover of your city. But it's also happening elsewhere, as you kind of alluded to. So, I mean, I think that you've pretty much convinced me and everyone who's watching this because we all know and love you. So, I want you to just kind of um, explain what we can do, because not everyone who's watching is going to live in New York City. So for outsiders, what can we do to help you? I know that donations are important. If we live in New York City, what can we do to help you? Just basically, how can we get you elected?
6: I hate to make it about money. I really (laughs) hate to make it about money.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
6: uh, We have a matching funds deadline. It is the last deadline. So... We have the system where every dollar that is raised in New York city, you get another $8 from the city, as long as it's $10 to $250. But the city makes it really strict. You only get access to that money if you raise $62,500. So we have about $10,000 left to raise. If you're in New York and you can afford, um, whatever you can afford, honestly, I mean, we, we are so grateful. You can go to our website at com and, um, and, and 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 really anything up to $250. So if you want to give more, uh tell your friends and family <laughs> if you live in New York City. Of course, if you would like to contribute, uh, if you don't live in New York City, that still helps us pay our bills. Uh we are running just to put this, you know, into context. We are running against some very very well-funded uh tricky electives. They have used the system to um to 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 basically uh skirt the campaign finance rules. So they could use previous accounts to fund things. They could raise more money. Um, they are—they have a lot of expensive lawyers. Some of them are funded by charter schools. Some of them, all of them pretty much have taken real estate developer money. We are not being backed by an institution. Uh, we actually got on the ballot in under a week. We collected over 10,000 signatures. And we didn't pay any shady shady firms. There are these shady uh, uh, you know, signature firms. They, they got into petition signatures. We have hardworking people on our campaign, um, honest folks are donating, and, uh, and I know that they're scared because they're starting to attack me. Uh, mm-hmm. There's 10 people in this race. I am not an elected official. I definitely haven't raised as much money. We haven't raised as much money as, as many of these people, but they're starting to attack, which means that they're actually scared. So mm-hmm. uh, once we hit those matching funds, we'll be able to flex our muscles more and get the message out about this to the whole city. Otherwise, we'll be drowned out by the corporate messaging. And, um, and that's why it's just really important right now. Of course, if you want to make phone calls, we'll be setting up a dialogue program uh, in the next week or so. But for now, it's, it's really about hitting those matching funds um, to keep us viable. And then you can watch me in the debate on February 6th. Uh, it's on New York One, if you're in New York. I don't know if they're streaming it, but I'm sure that we'll be able to package it in some way where you can watch it
3: afterwards. All right. Well, that sounds perfect. Uh, one more time. Can you tell us the website?
6: Sure. It's nom. I K I K O N S T dot com. There's a contribute button at the top, and um, you know we we this this is this is a very important race. Not a lot of folks are are expecting to turn out. So if you have friends and family in New York, if you are in New York, please spread the word. Um, you know there are a lot of elected officials in this race who are claiming to be progressive, and they might be on ninety percent of the issues. But at the end of the day, as long as they've taken real estate developer money, they are in bed with real estate. And that is what determines whether or not someone gets evicted from their home illegally, a neighborhood gets rezoned. Um, if you're not able to take on real estate, you're in bed with real estate, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, this is a crisis that is so extreme that I think that if we take it on in New York, it actually will have an effect um, across the country and maybe even across the globe. So you got to do this. We, we're just $10,000 away. <laughs> That's it. You're close.
3: You're so close. Very close. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Namiki, for New York Public Advocate. Thanks for uh, joining the show, and we're all rooting for you here.
6: Thank you so much for everything and everything you do. Uh, you're such a great educator, and I just, oh, just one you. one compliment. I have so many folks who say, "Oh, you need to go on the humanist report." You need to go on the <laughs> humanist report. So I love that we're a family, and everybody, um, you know, looks out for each other. Because that's what it's going to take to be able to fight uh, these these well funded corporate hacks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
3: And look, I'm on the opposite side of the country. You know, I'm on the Pacific Northwest. But what you ha- what you do in New York can have an impact elsewhere. Like, there, I always talk about the domino effect. You know, if if somebody implements a policy in one state that works out really well, other states could implement it. So it's not just about New York City, in my view. It's, it's about creating this broad coalition of progressives who are taking on, you know, the status quo. And I think that this is what uh, the race is about. So thank you for running. I think that this is really exciting.
1: Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you've made it this far, thank you all so much for tuning in. As usual, if you want to support us, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support. And before we leave, I can't not thank the people who make this show possible. Our Patreon patrons, our uh, PayPal supporters, as well as all the people who listen loyally on iTunes and SoundCloud. Shout out to those individuals. I will see you all next week. I'm Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. Take care.